Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as you might be able to tell, I'm not at CoLab this morning with the rest of the team. Instead, this is one of the rooms in my home. One of the guys on our son's soccer team at school came down with COVID, which he unintentionally passed along to a number of the other guys, one of whom is our son, after, which we found out after he had already come home and subsequently passed along to the rest of us. You know, we're just sort of doing our part, contributing to herd immunity at this point. All kidding aside, we're doing very well at this point. We're all in various stages of recovering and we are very, very thankful that it was a mild case. Please don't let that fool you into thinking it's not a big deal. We just heard word this morning from friends of ours whose relatives are having a very difficult case. It's a very dangerous kind of a thing. And so at this point we're quarantining as a family until we're sure that we are not contagious. And so I'm here, not at CoLab, and will be for several of the next services. Now, I need you to do something right now that's gonna be really hard. I need you to take everything that I just said and I want you to put it into a box. And then I want you to close the lid on the box and put the box over on the shelf. If you have to, you can open the box up later this afternoon. But we have much more important things to talk about right now. As a church, we've been studying through the book of Isaiah through the Advent season. We're going to continue that teaching series this morning, although very briefly. The passage that Luke just read talks about the future world that God is going to create. And I want to start by asking, why? Why would God tell us about the future? We can't do anything to make it happen. Most of us have too much on our own plates to worry about right now. Why bother telling us about things that are going to happen in the future? And if you ask it that way, you realize, actually, that was the question for Isaiah's day as well. We are in the same boat as they were. We live in the now, not the then, just like they did. So why bother them? Why bother us with then, with the future, when we've all got enough to do now? There are a couple different answers to that question. First, telling us about the future gives us hope when everything in our world seems dark. It helps us remember that life here is not all that there is. The personal suffering, societal upheaval, natural disasters, those are not the last word on this world. The last word is that God has promised a future for us and for this world. And we have confidence in that future. Why? Because what he promised the people in Isaiah's day the darkness of their day, that there would be a coming Messiah, that came true. And so we believe the rest of that promise as well, that we have a future that's coming. And the taste of that future now helps us in our own sorrows. Tim Keller put it really well when he wrote, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows tasting the coming joy. And that's important. You need to taste the coming joy if you're going to handle your present sufferings well. Knowing that that future joy is guaranteed makes it easier to handle the pain of the present. That's an important part of why God tells you the future. But I'm going to argue it's not the most important reason. If it was, then God could have ended after verse 17 when he said, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That one verse would have been enough to give you hope for the future in the middle of your sorrows, but God didn't end there with verse 17. Instead, he goes on to give you a sense of what that future world will be like. So he tells you in verses 19 to 20 that there will be no more weeping or distress, 
no more lives cut short, no more sin. People will be totally, completely happy. He goes on to tell you, verses 21 to 22, that people will be totally content. They'll enjoy their hard work, their hopes, their dreams for themselves and for their families are not going to be stolen, not going to be ruined. And he tells you, verses 24 to 25, the people will be at peace with God and with the rest of the world. The curse that you were born into and that you live under will be completely gone. All things will be new, so new that the former things will be forgotten. God gives you hints and details about what that future world's going to be like, which make you ask why. Why not just end after verse 17? And the answer is because in some very real sense, as much as that future involves you, it's not ultimately all about you. God doesn't give you all those details so that it orients you to the future. He gives you all of those details so that he orients you to the future maker. What do I mean by that? Look at the beginning of verse 18. It's a command. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Here's your command, something that you have to do. It's an obligation that you have, be happy. That's what your God says, rejoice. And not just for a little while, but forever. Be happy forever, rejoice forever, but don't wait until forever gets started to begin that rejoicing. This is something that you start now that goes into forever. It starts in the present. Think, well, why is that? Why should we be happy now? Why is being glad now an appropriate response to what God does later? Here's the reason. He goes on in verse 18, and he says, For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Why should you rejoice? Or to make it even more strong, why must you rejoice? Because of how great the future is going to be? Well, kind of. That, that There's some legitimacy there. But even more because of how great this God is, that that's the kind of future that he's dreaming about. That that's the kind of future that he is planning. God's intention is to create a world of joy and gladness. And when he tells you that, he tells you that he's not a God of sorrow. Not a God of burdens. Not a God of drudgery. Not a God that you can never please, God you can never make happy. He's a God who plans to rejoice and to be glad in his people. He plans to rejoice and be glad in you forever. In order to make his plans come about, he's decided to make you someone that he can be glad with. Someone that he can be happy in. Somebody that he can rejoice in. So why should you rejoice and be glad now? Because you will be someone that he will rejoice in and be glad later. Someone who makes him happy because he takes care of removing all the unhappy parts from you. Those former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Those former things are going to be gone. And instead of them, the things that you will want later in the future then, the things that you're going to talk with him about, pray about in the future, those things will be perfectly aligned with God's desires. Verse 24, before you call, he will answer. While you are speaking, he will hear. You and God will be perfectly in sync with each other. Nothing getting in the way. That's the world that he has planned for you. And as good as that world will be for you, as much hope as that brings to you, as much as you should rejoice in it, look beyond that world and look beyond that future to the God who designs it. 
Look beyond that to the God who promises to make it happen. Why should you rejoice and be glad now? Because you have that God right now. A God who says, these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. These are the kinds of things that are important to me. This is where I'm moving all of history toward. This is the only thing I'm going to be satisfied with. And that is pure, unadulterated, unending joy. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for him? Can you start to wrap your mind around what kind of person he is like? If you can't, don't be too hard on yourself. Most of us can't. I probably say all of us can't because in some very real way, we are all joy and gladness challenged. We live in a broken world where joy and gladness always end. We don't know what an unending joy is like. We live in a world where parties end, where presents wear out, where friends and family move away or pass away. On this planet, joy and gladness are fleeting. They're elusive. And so we don't think in terms of lasting joy. But we also live in a world where our own spirits are broken. We can't fully appreciate joy because we don't have the ability to fully take it in. I've heard stories from my distant relatives in Lithuania of what life was like in the USSR, of the scarcity that was there and of what it was like to shop in a world full of scarcity. And they would talk about where if you saw a line as you were walking down the street, then you just got in the line. You didn't care what they were selling. You didn't care what size it was, whether it would fit. You didn't care what, where, what else you were doing that day. You got in line because if you didn't get in line now, they'd run out, you wouldn't get any. Now imagine what it was like for people who lived under that level of deprivation when they were allowed to come visit the US. And they would go to places that are just, they're normal for you and me. Ordinary, commonplace, Walmart, the food store, places that are nothing exotic. Those kinds of places were overwhelming to them. They literally could not handle the abundance or the choices. And so they would just shut down in the middle of the store. They would stand in a daze where they would just start slowly turning around in circles. They had no capacity to understand or to absorb the abundance of what they were experiencing. And that is what you and I are like with joy. We don't have the ability to really understand it, to take it in. God says, I'm going to remake the world so that you will live in real, solid, unending joy. The kind of joy that perfectly reflects the joy that I experience all the time, because that's who I am, a God full of joy. We hear that and we're like, what? We just start slowly going around in circles. And God in his kindness knows that we don't get it. So he does two things to help us in our need. First, here in Isaiah, he gives us words, words that paint pictures that help us begin to grasp what he has in mind. And he starts to describe what joy is like, so that what? So that we'll start to get a taste for it. He's giving us a way of understanding where he's headed because of who he is, so that we start to want what he's offering. But he knows that that's not enough. And so second, much later than Isaiah's day, this God enters into our joy-deprived world to introduce it to joy, to give us an experience of joy, an experience of what it is like for him to be him and for what is inside of him. And so Jesus came and he invaded people's lives with joy. Think about his miracles. Think about how, how, how do you 
think people responded to what he did? Do you have the imagination to see that? How do you think the widow responded when Jesus brought back her only son from the dead? Can you see her face? Is she just kind of flat, staring back at him, deadpan, unemotional, no affect? You realize, no, there's joy there, gladness, there's wonder. You can see it on her face. You can see it in the tears, in her smile. You can hear it in her voice with what she says. You can see it as she grabs her son. The world is not big enough to contain her joy in that moment. That's what Jesus left in his wake everywhere he went. He left joy and gladness when lepers could return to community, when they could be reunited with their friends and family, when they could be touched again, hugged again. Jesus left joy and gladness when deaf people heard the human voice for the very first time. When blind people could see this beautiful world that God has made. He left joy and gladness when the lame, the paralyzed could walk, when they could take up their bed and go down the street, when they could go back to work, when they could go to work for the first time. He left joy and gladness when suddenly there was more food than a crowd could eat. There was more wine than wedding guests could drink. Calling these things miracles misses the point. They're signs. Signs that the king of joy and gladness has come. Signs that everything, everywhere that was broken was on the verge of being put right. He entered into our joylessness and brought joy. He entered into our sorrow and he brought laughter. He entered into our emptiness and he brought fullness. When he entered into people's lives, people were glad and they rejoiced. And if you need any proof that our capacity for joy is twisted, distorted, atrophied, what happened? People saw what he did, they experienced what he did, and ultimately they decided to kill him for what he did. And here's our God of joy. He knew that they would, but he came anyway, because in his death and in his resurrection, resurrection, he opened the door to something that we could never have otherwise. He could bring temporal joy while he was here on earth. When he died and rose again, he opened the door to an eternity of joy, an eternity that he could only hint at while he was here. And it's an eternity that he is not planning to be a bystander to. He's not going to sit back in eternity and just sort of watch us dispassionately. Instead, it's an eternity where he plans to enter into it, where he plans, verse 19, to rejoice in Jerusalem, to be glad in his people, to share in the joy. Which makes you think, well, what was his reaction like when people rejoiced in front of him on this earth? How do you think he responded? Do you have the imagination to think about the look on his face? What do you think it was like? Do you think it was flat, deadpan, unemotional? You realize, no, there had to be joy there. You don't do these kinds of signs if you have no taste for joy. You don't create people who experience joy if you don't have any yourself. And you don't enter their world to bring them joy unless you're planning to participate in that joy with them. Have you ever watched the face of someone who's watching someone else experience joy? Have you ever watched a parent who's watching their child's face when the child tastes ice cream for the very first time? Or they're watching their child 
later perform at their recital and just nail it, or they watch their child graduate. What do you see on the parent's face as they see the joy on their child's face? Don't you see a reflection of joy? Or what do you see on the face of a friend who's watching their friend get publicly acknowledged, rewarded for their accomplishments? Don't you see joy there reflected from that other person? What do you see on someone's face when they introduce their friend to a food that the friend hasn't tried before? They take them to a new restaurant, they take them to a new bar. What do you see on a lover's face as they give their beloved a special gift? What do you see on someone's face as they watch someone that they love experience joy? You see the reflection of joy, don't you? And then as the two make eye contact, what do you watch? Watch the joy bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. That's the future that God wants with you. That you would enter into that never-ending reflection of joy from his face to your face, from your face back to his face, from your face to the faces of others around you and then back, where you would enter into this never-ending reflection of joy from face to face to face to face to face to face to face. That's the world that God is creating. That's why you should be glad and rejoice now. Because you don't have to wait for that future world. You can participate now. You can have him now. How do you get him? He told his disciples, all you have to do is ask. In John 16, he said to them that even though he was going away to his death, that they would see him again that he would be with them, that they would be in his presence. And he said, when that happens, you will have joy that no one can take away from you. And then he promised, truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you want joy? The presence of this joyful God in your life? Then ask, it's the only way you're gonna have joy. You can't create it, but he can rescue you so that you can receive it. Ask the source of joy to give you more of him. Ask for the first time, ask for the hundredth time. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are an amazingly joyful God, a happy God. Lord, there are ocean depths of lightness about you, in you. Lord, you see the darkness of this world. You enter into it, but you are not crushed by the darkness. You come into this darkness to ignite something that cannot be snuffed out, to ignite joy. Lord, I pray that I would enter into that today more fully. I pray that my friends, my brothers, my sisters would enter into that more fully. Lord, that we would be a people who are joyful, even in the midst of a dark world, not because we don't get it, get the world, but because we get you. And because you've given to us something that's just going to flower into eternity. Lord, let us enter into that more fully today in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.